FDF Awards. One of the most prestigious nights in the food and drink calendar is online 3rd of February. For details of this and other FDF events, including our online convention, visit our website, fdf.org.uk. FDF, passionate about food and drink. Thank you for joining us at the latest FDF fortnightly issues update webinar. Uh, I think it's been three weeks since the last webinar that we hosted. Uh, and uh, in between, we hosted the FDF Brexit Essentials event, which hopefully you have the chance to join. Uh, we've got a bumper selection of updates from the team today uh, with an extended uh, session covering all the usual sus uh, subjects, starting off with COVID-19, where we'll have uh, updates from uh, our colleagues, Nikki, around developments that we've seen uh, over the last few weeks and the, the uh, latest information on the review of English tiers that we're waiting for. Sarah Malone will join to provide some updates on recent developments on business support. And uh, making a debut appearance this week, we have uh, Caroline Kean, who will be talking about uh, lateral flow testing that's being provided for the food and drink industry, and finishing off with updates from David and Pete uh, in Scotland and Wales. We then have uh, a section from Emma Piercy looking at sustainability and work around net zero before moving on to the EU exit part of the agenda uh, with latest developments uh, around the negotiations being shared by James, as usual. Uh, Mark Harrison will join to talk about immigration and the EU settlement scheme. I will then give some updates uh, around the UK global tariff uh, and broader activity around international trade, including uh, government's recent decision around suspending the Airbus sanctions, uh, and then hopefully uh, joining us from a call with government, Luke uh, Heindlaw will be coming along to talk about latest developments on Northern Ireland. And we'll finish, as always, with Ian's latest observations and a chance to hear your questions. Uh, as always, uh, using the uh, software as indicated on the right-hand side of the screen, please do ask your questions and we will uh, answer them as best we can at the end of the meeting. Any that we aren't able to answer, we will follow up by email, uh, or if you would prefer, you can always email Ian directly at ian.right at fdf.org.uk and ask questions directly to Ian as well. Uh, so without further ado, I will now pass over to Nikki to share updates uh, on COVID since the last webinar on 24th of November. Lovely, thank you, Dominic. So there's been a fair bit happening over the last few weeks. Um, on the 24th of November, the UK's four nations agreed on plans for Christmas, allowing three households to get together indoors and outdoors for five days from the 23rd to the 27th of December, and Northern Ireland is allowing seven days of relaxed restrictions from the 28th, sorry, 22nd to the 28th of December. Um, obviously, that has now changed, as you'll have seen if you've been watching the news for the last couple of days, and I'll come back to that again shortly. As regard the spending review, uh, the Chancellor's warned that the um, economic uh, damage caused by COVID has only just be begun. The OBR has predicted that unemployment will reach 7.5% because of the crisis, and the UK economy will shrink by 11.3%, which is the biggest decline in 300 years. I'm not quite sure how they managed to calculate that, as there probably weren't accurate records going back that far, but that's what the economists are predicting. And uh, the debt is, is forecast to be the highest outside of wartime. On the 26th of November, the new tier system for England was announced, um, which would come into force on the 2nd of December. 
uh, Liverpool and London were put in tier two, while large parts of the northeast, northwest, including Greater Manchester and Birmingham, are in tier three. Only the Isle of Wight, Cornwall and the Isles of Scilly escaped to be in tier one, lucky for them. On the 28th of November, Nadim Zawawi was appointed as the parliamentary undersecretary for the coronavirus vaccine deployment. Moving on to the 29th, the government has signed a further deal for 2 million doses of the uh, Moderna vaccine, bringing the total number of doses secured now to 7 million. That's sourced across seven suppliers, of course, and at the moment, obviously, only the uh, Pfizer-BioNTech one has received the MHRA approval. Version four of the NHS COVID-19 app will include a self-isolation payment section to it in a bid to encourage more people to download it and follow its advice. Obviously, everyone's very interested in the uh, payment aspect of it. On the 1st of December, Michael Gove says there are no plans to introduce a vaccine passport, which would control access to places such as pubs and restaurants once the vaccine becomes widespread. And the MPs voted 291 to 78 in favour of introducing England's tough new COVID restrictions. On the 2nd of December, a landmark day for all of us, the UK became the first country in the world to approve the Pfizer-BioNTech vaccine and scheduled vaccinations to begin once supplies started to arrive into the UK. On Friday the 4th of December, the Business Secretary Alex Sharma um, said that the the UK government was committed to uh, around 800 doses of the Pfizer-BioNTech vaccine. Figures from the ONS indicated that COVID-19 rates were falling in every part of the country apart from the northeast, and the R number fell to a rate of between 0.8 and 1. Very big day for Margaret Keenan, 90 years old, and she received her first, uh, the very first vaccination in the world from the Pfizer-BioNTech vaccine as the rollout began, obviously under close attention from the world's media. And the very, very well-named William Shakespeare, aged 81, from uh, Stratford-on-Avon, became second. On Thursday, the 10th of December, that there is a warning that the UK residents could be prevented from travelling to the European Union after the 1st of January 2021, as travel restrictions associated with uh, the UK as a Brexit um, may be presenting, preventing that. On Friday, the 11th of December, the period of self-isolation for contacts of someone testing positive for COVID-19 uh, reduced. That reduced from 14 days to 10 days. And that also had some impact for travel restrictions as well, because uh, for those travelling from outside of the common travel area or from the uh, air corridors, obviously the rules are different, but those returning from the non-travel uh, corridor areas, that's reduced from, again, 14 days to 10 days. But with also an exemption which came into effect um, on the 15th, which allowed people that were taking uh, COVID tests, if they returned negative, they could reduce their period of isolation down to uh, five days. On the 14th of December, the new variant of COVID-19 um, was announced with the health secretary briefing that they were starting to see cases of that in the south. Importantly, though, at this stage, they do not believe that that will affect the rollout of the vaccine. They believe that the current vaccine will be able to cope with the uh, new variant strain there. Vaccinations also began in GP surgeries across England and some care homes in Scotland. Obviously, currently, the um, temperature control restrictions on the Pfizer-BioNTech vaccine make it quite difficult to, to roll out in care homes. Um, but obviously, there's hope that that might be addressed with some of the future vaccines as they come on the stream. Matt Hancock also told the House of Commons that due to the fast rising rates in London, 
parts of Essex and parts of South Hertfordshire. They moved into tier three at just past midnight on Wednesday, the 16th of December. And obviously we're still awaiting announcements this morning of the uh, formal review of England's tiering system. At present, predictions are that it's not likely to change very much. I believe the press conference to announce that will be around 11.30. So obviously, if we receive any news prior to that, I'll let you know. Um, the government's also announcing that extending testing to tier two areas with higher rates of COVID-19 could be up and running before Christmas. So that would be the rapid results test. Just to mention a couple of additional updates for this week. Um, those of you that saw the press conference yesterday from the Prime Minister and the Chief Medical Officer for England, Chris Whitty, um, there's certainly some confusion around the relaxation of the Christmas, uh, Christmas arrangements. The um, press conference yesterday confirmed for England that will be a three household limit with a five day Christmas relaxation. Um, they're stressing that celebrations should still conform to being short, small and local. And as the Prime Minister mentioned, the, uh, the, the three household uh, five day uh, criteria should be um, a maximum, but not a target. Subsequently, of course, to that, the Welsh Government has announced some changes and Scotland's also announced a little bit of variation as one of my colleagues, Pete and David, will cover that in the section on the devolved administrations. And uh, as mentioned this morning, we are awaiting the developments on the tiering arrangements. So I'll bring you any news of that as we get to it. A couple of other things to announce. Um, you may have seen yesterday that the government issued a policy paper exempting reimbursements to staff from employers for COVID tests. They will be exempt from national insurance and tax. So that government is that uh, document there is on the Government UK website and also was circulated as part of last night's FDF bulletin. Just a reminder also that uh, podcasts are now available, so you can catch up on this and all of the other COVID and uh, Brexit-related developments on the FDF podcast across many channels. Also, just to let you know about the support that we're putting in place over the Christmas period for COVID-19, it doesn't mean that uh, FDF staff will be taking a very well-earned holiday over that period. It's just that many of the staff that are deployed on COVID are also covering the Brexit arrangements as well. So just to recap, if you could continue to send any of your inquiries to the COVID-19 inquiry email box there, covid 19 inquiry at fdf.org.uk. And uh, if any colleagues are on holiday, then they will be picked up by other members of the team. Website support is also available through the member area of the FDF website. And you can also look at the various government um, sites there, the UK government, Scottish government and Welsh government. FDF will close at 1pm on the 23rd of January through to the 4th, sorry, 23rd of December through to the 4th of January. There will be some emergency cover through the usual incident arrangement, which is through the FDF switchboard, which will put you through to the on-call duty press officer for the day. And uh, that's it from me. Uh, Sarah, on to you, please. So I've got a really quick update this week on COVID-19 loan schemes. Um, so the latest is that UK government is planning to replace the existing loan schemes with a permanent state-backed small business loan. Um, the plans are still being finalised, but they are expected to provide a guarantee of up to 80% on loans of up to £10 million. The lower end for these is sort of expected to be at just thousands of pounds. And this is over a six year lending period. It's believed that banks will be able to set interest rates on the loans, but that they will likely be capped at 
access to these uh, new loans is expected to be much more stringent than the bounce back loan scheme and more in line with the existing coronavirus business interruption loan scheme, which which essentially means more rigorous <coughs> checks over a borrower's creditworthiness. It also includes reintroducing some element of personal guarantee for borrowers. We expect this to be rolled out from January next year. And in the meantime, whilst the terms are still being finalised, it's possible that the existing loan schemes, so the bounce back loans, etc., will be extended as these are due to come to an end next month. So that's everything. I'll pass on to Caroline to discuss the latest on testing. For those that don't know me, my name is Caroline Kihan. I'm Head of Industrial Strategy, Skills and Employment. And I'm uh, currently leading this project on COVID testing in the food and drink industry. So many of you will probably be aware that over the last few months, the government's test and trace programme has been undertaking a number of testing pilots with individual businesses. And they were supporting businesses to test their own employees. So building on this sort of recovery strategy, the government is now looking to launch what they're calling a controlled ramp up of testing in the private sector. And I'm pleased to say that they've chosen food and drink manufacturing as one of the first sectors to work with. And hopefully this prioritisation in the testing um, project could also be applied to vaccinations further down the line. But we're still working on that actively. The control ramp up is on a voluntary basis and the aim is to identify asymptomatic cases across the sector to avoid any possible outbreaks and ultimately allowing you to continue to operate effectively. In terms of the criteria to get involved, health and economic impact. So this is very much focusing on particular sectors at most risk. So, for example, meat and poultry, dairy, bakery and fish. And they're also focusing on businesses with higher employee numbers to maximise health benefits. Um, Small and medium sized businesses. So they are aiming to include a number of smaller manufacturers to test their experience of the controlled ramp up and find out any learnings and sort of uh, ways of improving the system, particularly for smaller companies. And as I said earlier, this is on a voluntary basis, but the more businesses that get involved, obviously the better chance we have of creating a testing model that's workable and we'll be able to roll out um, in terms of a full-scale rollout. When we look at geography, um, so the control ramp-up is currently focusing in England, but I know that the team are currently in talks with the devolved administration so that this can be rolled out across the UK. So if your business is located in Wales, Scotland and Northern Ireland, please don't register your, um, your interest as we do expect you to be able to get involved pretty much soon, you know, in early 2021 or early in the new year, I should say. So, I mean, I'm happy to take questions at the end of the session, but I thought it might just be helpful to go through the setting up process so you would have, um, if you are interested in getting involved, you would have a, a kickoff session with the Department for Health and Social Care. Um, so basically scoping out how, you know, who you want to test in terms of your employees, what sites you would like to get involved. Um, and you would be required to sign a, a non-disclosure agreement as part of this process. You would then set up the test site, so identify the space required. You would need a well-ventilated room, hard flooring, um, this would all be um, detailed in a manual that the government provides you with um, and also identifying who within your business could help you um, deliver this. You would then order test kits and prepare for testing. So the government have agreed to uh, supply four weeks worth of test kits. 
for free. Um, and I know that they're currently um, working to enable the private sector to deliver a market for test kits in the longer term. So I guess provide, you know, ensuring that we have more suppliers would obviously bring the cost down. But in the first instance, government would provide those kits for free for the first four to six weeks. You would then um, conduct the testing. Um, so using a lateral flow device, um, you would test your employees once a week. So for those that may be familiar with the lateral flow device, it's similar to a pregnancy test. So in the case of the mass testing that took place in Liverpool, a swab of the nose or the throat is then placed onto a test device and the results are displayed within 15 to 30 minutes. Should one of your employees receive a positive result, they would then be encouraged to take a PCR test for confirmation and will be asked to wait at home um, for a 24-48 hour period until the PCR result um, is confirmed. We then, um, I understand the government then take test sample analysis um, and they would obviously review this data um, and it would be very much a two-way dialogue between yourselves and government, what is working well, what isn't working well, and then these learnings would then be taken, changes would be made to the model, the testing model, and there is a plan then to have a full-scale rollout in early 2021. So in terms of next steps, um, the Test and Trace programme team will be running a number of workshops in the new year for businesses that are interested in taking part and want to understand more in terms of the practicalities of testing your employees. And if you'd like to find out more, I'm happy to answer any questions, but I think further detail will be coming in the new year. Okay, and I'll just hand over to David Thompson now, who's going to discuss the situation in Scotland. Uh, just a uh, quick couple of elements from Scotland today. Um, the manufacturing guidance for those in the manufacturing sector has now been redrafted to reflect the 10-day rather than the 14-day uh, quarantine that's available on the Scottish Government website and of course the specialised guidance on Food Standards Scotland's website. And as of this week, three levels moved up to the Scottish uh, Tier 3 level. There are five levels in Scotland, with uh, level four being the highest. So about 80% of Scotland's entire population is under level three re restriction. There are noises from the Scottish Government about enhanced uh, guidance over the Christmas period, uh, which is likely, but not confirmed, to include spending Christmas on your own if you could, um, meeting other households, even in your bubble, outdoors if possible, only meeting indoors with others if essential, limiting the duration, possibly to one day out of the Christmas period, um, and don't stay overnight in another's home. So uh, while um, ostensibly they are keeping the same rules uh, as the other parts of the UK, it seems likely uh, that the messaging will be pretty tough in Scotland. Uh, and John Swinney uh, on the radio this morning He's the Deputy First Minister in Scotland. He indicated that they are also considering a post-Christmas lockdown, as um, as Wales have already indicated they will have. Uh, and I'm sure we'll hear more about that over the course of the next week. Uh, so that's it from me for Scotland. I'm going to pass over to Pete Robertson to talk about Wales. Yeah, it's interesting. That in the last three weeks, the situation we start with COVID in Wales is, is completely transformed. Uh, when we started, Wales was at the lowest level of cases, whereas now Wales is now at the top of the charts of cases, and that has really formed uh, Welsh Government's policy over the last three weeks. Uh, we, in terms of this, the range, you've got Anglesey at the bottom of the list of 50 cases per 100,000, with Neathport Talbot at the top with 700. So this, the, the scale of the challenge is quite significant. Um, in terms of tiers, 
given that England has three tiers and Scotland has five tiers, Wales has got four tiers with specific criteria to change uh, and has already announced that it will be moving into its tier four, which is the equivalent of a fire break immediately after the, the Christmas. It's been mentioned before about the differences in Christmas and uh, Wales has actually already announced off the bat yesterday a phased approach into that fire break starting on Christmas Eve where all non-essential stores will close, leisure and fitness centres, hospitality will close at 6pm on Christmas Day and effectively then that takes us into Tier 4 immediately on the 28th. So it is quite a diff different picture. Uh, international restrictions and that's that's been a huge part, uh, aspect of the debate over the last three weeks. Uh, vaccination priorities have been set, not necessarily a timetable. The first vaccination started off yesterday in North Wales in a care home and through NHS care workers, vulnerable people, the list there's 10 categories which effectively takes up to 50, anyone over 50 years of age is the priority from vaccination. Um, in terms of testing itself, uh, Caroline's mentioned already, but the testing provisions are, are being finalised and we are in discussions with them. In terms of funding, a couple of, couple of uh, announcements really. One, uh, yesterday Welsh Government announced it's going to fix the business rate multiplier so there's no inflation coming in rates for next year. Uh, and the, the reason it says, well, it says on the slide that you can see ERF 3.5 is because this is the hospitality related item. So if your business is facing into hospitality and a 60% drop in turnover, please access for the period of the 4th of December to 15th of January, then they're looking for expressions of interest. However, that money is not likely to hit your bank account until um, January period. In terms of EU readiness, uh, the Welsh Government has put together its combined services emergency cell and it actually sees that emergency cell being in place for three months at least until the end of March. Uh, and in terms of what we're looking at, FDF, I'm very much conscious of what's happening on the ports and we're keeping very close to that. And that's it for me. And I'll pass over to my colleague, Emma, to talk about the net zero. Yeah, so uh, over the last week, uh, we've had a couple of major publications, one from the Climate Change Committee, and that was on the sixth carbon budget. And uh, secondly, with the, the long-awaited release of the Energy White Paper. So just to start off with uh, the Climate Change Committee report, um, a couple of things I wanted to draw your attention to. Um, around uh, the, the, the picture that we have there and looking at the decarbonisation pathway uh, for food and drink, which is roughly about the middle of the uh, graph with the columns, um, we see there that um, energy efficiency, electrification and hydrogen uh, are going to be the, the, the major areas to, to help um, with those uh, on-site emissions uh, for our manufacturing facilities and getting those down to net zero. And the other aspects um, in terms of bringing the sector to net zero that the report touches upon are around those uh, four points I've noted there. So of particular relevance to, to food and drink. So around um, HG, HGVs, for example, in terms of transport, um, the reduction uh, in meat and dairy consumption. And on that note, um, the CCC have said, actually in a call I was on earlier this week, they'd like to see a reduction in meat and dairy consumption of about 20% by 2030 and a 30% reduction uh, by 2050. And those uh, reductions that they, that they feel would actually then also open up land uh, to afforestation and, and, and bioenergy practices. Uh, and indeed, actually, the other aspect to looking at supply chain emissions are low carbon farming practices. So I think... Um, 
what we will see uh, in the the forthcoming national food strategy in the part two will maybe be some reflection on some of these comments that, that we've seen uh, in this uh, climate change committee report uh, the uh, other uh, document that, that came out as i mentioned was the ng white paper the main uh, uh, announcement within there was a co the confirmation of a UK emissions trading system and that is to replace uh, the current EU emissions trading uh, system um, from the 1st of January. So this doesn't affect too many members, um, however I, I think it's important in principle because it's uh, basically the government is saying that the scheme will be a more ambitious than the EU ETS and will be the world's first net zero carbon cap and trade market. Um, so it could be, again, sort of a signal of, of sort of what's to come. And I think the increasing focus uh, that the UK government is having uh, this year ahead of hosting COP26 next year. And just the last bullet point there, again, around preparing for COP26, the uh, uh, Department of for business energy industrial strategy have launched a project to look at SME engagement on net zero and we are helping promote that project and, and there's a, a five minute survey which they're asking uh, for people to complete. So if you if you come under that category then, then, then please do contribute, You're, um, that would be really really welcome. And then just to, to touch on our uh, narrative project on net zero so hopefully you'll be aware of this already as we've touched upon this a couple of times already so this ran in october and november and uh, we had a survey that was open to both members and to uh, participants in the food and drink climate change agreement so thank you to all of those uh, who have participated in the survey and that's been really helpful uh, in bringing together a number of recommendations uh, that we can um, look to implement it in, in our work program for next year. Now, really, as, as terms of the next point, this is all about helping our, our members in the lead up, uh, particularly to the UK hosting COP26 next year, and to also look at how we can feed into the, the, the various government publications that are coming. For example, the industrial decarbonisation strategy, which will come in the spring, uh, HM Treasury's report into the cost of meeting net zero, which will also come in the spring, and there will be a net zero strategy to be released uh, later in the year. And I think the other important point uh, for me in, in, in looking at next year's work programme is what other uh, stakeholders are, are doing. And of course, we've seen the BRC very recently published their roadmap to net zero and with the goal of uh, 2040, and the, you know, the, the NFU recently. Uh, earlier uh, this year in 2020. So uh, this sort of culminates in, in the point where in the February, uh, at a date uh, to be confirmed, we will hold a, a public uh, sort of webinar uh, to really feedback on uh, the results from this uh, narrative project and to then talk about, well, what are we doing about all those recommendations? So therefore to introduce our uh, work programme for 2021 on net zero. But what I can say is that a key deliverable will be for us uh, to, to develop a roadmap to net zero uh, for uh, the food and drink sector. And um, very much look forward to, to working with you all. Um, thank you. And um, now I can pass over to James. So uh, hello, everyone. Um, so the last three weeks has obviously been a bit of a nail biter uh, with regards to Brexit. Um, 
are kick off on the uh, 25th of November. So uh, back then, Mar uh, Michel Barnier was uh, warning Lord Frost that um, he was going to pull out of negotiations if London didn't shift his positions. And by the weekend, on the 29th of February, Dominic Raab was complaining on the Andrew Marr show and Sky uh, in the morning uh, programme that the Europeans had been changing their, their goalposts. There was a dramatic change of fish quotas. They were, they were going to have to reject the 18% proposal from Europe. That, 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 that's all that UK would uh, have. Talks were said to be progressing, but fish was remaining uh, the main issue. Uh, and they thought that the level playing field uh, issue was was being resolved, uh, although we can we know since that hasn't been quite the case. Going over to the 1st of December, skilled, water, skilled worker route and other routes of the UK immigration system uh, was open for applications. And the next day, uh, there, uh, Michel Barnier was being told uh, with with a call uh, around uh, European capitals. He's been told by the French that he uh, wanted they, they needed him to toughen up uh, various lines. So kind of kind of um, given a little bit more clarity to what Rob was saying about changing of goalposts. Reports from those conversations said it was pretty scratchy with Dutch, Belgian, and Danish ambassadors being quite hard on Barnier. And it was thought that this was a bit of a new uh, brinkmanship. EU thinking they could push the UK into a no deal, as the Brits were desperate uh, to get back if there was a no deal uh, at that stage. So over to the 3rd of December. So despite all the claims and counterclaims, it was still seen at that stage, if you remember, that white smoke was expected. A deal was being expected. There was internal party support uh, emerging. Uh, Labour weren't sure whether they were going to back the deal or, or abstain. And there was talk that um, if... Boris was to come back with a deal, but it it uh, it, it still kind of gave uh, the EU kind of rights over level playing field and governance things like that. He could face a um, a leadership um, uh, challenge. So it's all getting a little bit feisty. To the fifth of December, at last the uh, Boris and Ursula von der Leyen phone call took place. Uh, they agreed that significant uh, differences remained, but they agreed to keep talking, which was seen as positive, obviously and that they would speak again um, on the Monday. On the 6th of December, uh, George Eustace, in another round of uh, Sunday morning interviews, uh, said on the Andrew Marr show that French interventions the previous week had taken talks a bit backwards from a UK perspective. Um, so you can see uh, kind of where the cracks started to emerge in the week that followed. On the 7th of December, uh, Barnier briefed um, EU, EU ambassadors again in the morning. It was rather bleak assessment by all accounts. Uh, and he was saying at that stage that he didn't see the talks go beyond Wednesday the night because the EU council was going to take place on Thursday and Friday and he didn't just see how any ratification would be possible. We know that that has kind of gone beyond now. Uh, on that same day, on the uh, 7th, the internal markets bill uh, with the various clauses uh, which would uh, which were seen as breaking international law, uh, they uh, that returned to the Commons. There was a compromise uh, beginning to be talked about on the EU side about fish, although the UK was downplaying that. Uh, still, though, it was seen very much that a deal was in the offing. There was another phone call uh, that day between Ursula and Boris. Uh, the statement that emerged from it said, a joint statement, uh, we agree that the conditions for finalising an agreement are not there, but due to remaining significant differences on three critical issues, level playing field, governance and fisheries, uh, remain. So no change, but they agreed to meet in Brussels a few days later. On the 8th of December, uh, what was a little bit maybe surprising was that uh, there was an EU-UK uh, deal announced, and that was um, on the how to implement the withdrawal, withdrawal agreement 
significance for the provisions on Northern Ireland. Uh, and at this stage, the various uh, clauses which were offending the European Union were taken out of the Internal Markets Bill and the Finance Bill. So the 9th of December on the Wednesday, we had the dinner date between Ursula and Boris. Uh, didn't go as well as uh, both sides probably ho had hoped. Uh, the only uh, good thing to kind of emerge from it, while they both acknowledged that they remained far apart, they did agree that they would keep talking um, and that they would check in um, on a Sunday, which, which was the 13th, so about four days later. At this stage, it was being reported that Boris had cabinet clearance to make a deal or to go for no deal. And this is where all the talk of no deal was being seriously ramped up on both sides. It was also emerged that Number 10 had set up a secretive comms unit, which was going to deal with the joint challenges of Brexit disruption, deal or no deal, COVID and extreme winter weather. So that will be reassuring or terrifying, depending on your perspective. Uh, to the 13th of December, checking a call between Esther and Boris took place. Uh, they agreed that um, they would go the extra mile uh, to try and find a deal. And at this stage, all the talk of various deadlines, which came and went and came and went, basically, at this stage, the only deadline that we were now talking about was the 31st of December at the end of the transition deal with any deal that could be agreed in the meantime being a plus for obvious reasons. On the same day, Dominic Raab um, started talking about the UK's position on a level playing field and just how it could be adjusted and, and ways uh, that compromises could be found. But the government also took um, steps around no deal planning and asked for uh, different areas of industry to start stockpiling. EU official at the start of this week was quoted by Sky News as saying that a narrow path through a trade deal was visible. It was being reported, although not confirmed, that the ratchet clause uh, proposed by the European uh, Union had been dropped. The two sides were trying to define how any divergence on standards would be determined and how, how the definition of unfair would be determined and what rebalancing measures would be acceptable. And the role of an independent arbitration resolution was being talked about. Um, interesting to note that Barnier and von der Leyen um, met with the main political leaders in the European Parliament to talk about, talk about re possible ratification, deadline scenarios and legal solutions um, to avoid a no-deal scenario, but very much kind of deal with what would happen if, if the EU Parliament was being asked to ratify, but it can't see the legal text. And, it, and the EU was beginning to kind of talk about maybe a gentleman's agreement between kind of rolling on with a grace period while, uh, while everything was being sorted out in the case that there's a deal. European sources say the UK compromised on the area of the playing field. Number 10 said that they, that still remained a little bit difficult. They didn't recognize the EU's optimism Various journalists speculate that this might be an attempt by the EU to dance the UK into position to try and create some momentum. And just the other day, though, it's been reported that uh, there's an increasing buzz amongst Tory MPs with messages from uh, number 10 saying that Eurosceptics have got nothing to fear. Well, Parliament's gone into recess now. There's a lot of talk that it could be recalled this Friday or next Monday on Tuesday if a deal is announced and, and the UK Parliament has to uh, debate and ratify it. So the signals are beginning to look uh, a little bit more positive. The last slide here just goes through the various uh, dates. As I said before, 31st of December is just now the crucial dead, uh, deadline, the one that uh, everyone is very kind of uh, cognizant of. Um, there are more creative approaches of being um, considered with regard to ratification and the other dates uh, you will be aware of. So with that, I'll hand over to Mark. And an update firstly around some of the guidance FDS provided. So um, 
alongside some of the other five essential steps documents we've produced around Brexit. We've now uh, produced the five essential steps on workforce and immigration. Uh, there's further information uh, on the link, which you can click on when the slides are sent out, and also on the FDF Brexit page, which is where that is hosted. In terms of the headlines, um, number one, support your current employees to apply to the EU settlement scheme by June 2021. And number two, understand whether it's feasible to meet future workforce needs for immigration. So that's understanding whether the roles you're going to need to uh, recruit for will be able to meet the um, skill and salary threshold of the skilled worker route, if that is the route you want to try and hire people through. Um, number three is understanding the additional costs and responsibilities of being a licensed immigration sponsor. And I'd recommend um, the presentation given by Animal Mace of Squire Patton Boggs at the uh, Brexit day we hosted last week on this. Um, number four, in terms of more future looking, collect data and information on employment shortages to policy to inform policy, sorry, going forward. Um, whilst, as we mentioned in the previous slides, some routes are now up and running, more are coming through and they will be refined on the basis of data um, being fed into both Home Office and the Migration Advisory Committee. And FDF will be continuing to feed that, that data in and the more data we have from our members and the more data the government has from our members, the more informed they will be and understand where there are shortages. And the fifth point is around understanding um, settlement and immigration in EEA member states where this is applicable to your business. So if you know that you will have um, members of staff going into um, the European Economic Area or Switzerland uh, after the 1st of January 2021, uh, you will need to understand both their rules for short-term business visitors and also for any long-term immigration. On top of this, any UK citizens you currently have based in these countries should be eligible for um, the member state equivalent of the EU settlement scheme. So under the withdrawal agreement, um, the UK and all EU member states are required um, to implement such a scheme. So obviously with the e, with them, the UK, sorry, that's for EU citizens with each individual member state is to allow British citizens who are settled in those countries to remain in those countries um, with the same sort of rights they have now. Um, two other small points for moving on to the next uh, part of my section. So the Frontier Worker Permit applications are now open. Um, the initial um, briefing on this was really, this was mostly for commuters from Europe and I guess in in actuality that would mostly be France and the Benelux countries. Um, looking at the actual criteria it seems to be far broader than that and it is um, a free permit that is open for people who have spent uh, less than six months uh, working uh, in the UK and are from an EU country. So again we'll be producing more guidance on this soon um, but if you have um, people who have worked in your business you think won't be eligible for the EU settlement scheme, they may be eligible for a frontier worker permit if they are not permanently based in the UK. Um, so it's something worth exploring and something that will be putting more guidance out on shortly. Um, another area we'll be putting more guidance out on shortly is business visitors. Um, so there have been updates to the business visitor rules. We have members um, get in touch for quite a while now with concern around um, EEA or Swiss citizens coming over to service manufacturing equipment that has been bought from European countries. Um, the new business visitor rules make clear that uh, maintaining and installing equipment where there is a contract with a UK company uh, will um, will be able to come to the UK for, for six months to carry out that kind of work. We've had some more guidance in on this since this slide was drafted and we'll be summarising that and signposting that for, for members shortly. But in, in short, that's, that's, that's good news 
uh, really around the ability to bring in um, maintenance and installation staff from uh, companies where you're maybe buying manufacturing equipment from. Um, this is a issue um, that we've been getting some more guidance on again in the run up to the end of the transition period um, around the grace period for the EU settlement scheme in the first part of 2020. So I'll just try and run through um, clearly but swiftly what the issue is that we are facing here and what we want feedback from members on. So EEA or Swiss nationals are required to be settled in the UK by the 31st of December to be eligible for the EU settlement scheme, but they have this grace period where they do not need to apply until the 30th of June. 2021. Um, so during this period, uh, employers are not permitted to discriminate on the basis of EU settlement scheme status. They're not expected to differentiate between those arriving before and after the 31st of December 2020. They're not required to carry out follow-up checks after the grace period. I've used those particular words permitted, expected and required as those are the ones we have in the latest draft lines for the forthcoming guidance on this. Um, and I think it, there's a lack of sort of clarity there about what is and isn't uh, legally permitted and um, which we're seeking clarity on. So the problem that we see with this, whilst it uh, makes sense to give people time to apply for the Eastern Scheme um, who, who are eligible, um, there may be an issue where an individual has not applied for the EU Settlement Scheme by the 30th of June 2021 and may not have lawful status to live and work in the UK. So the, the, the guidance is clear that an employer would not be uh, liable to penalty if the initial right to work check is conducted correctly unless um, the employee makes the employer aware uh, of their lack of status and they continue to do so. So um, I think that's the Home Office have tried to reassure us on that front. But I think there's, there's, there's another problem here, really, uh, which is essentially that um, you may uh, think you are employing someone legally. They may think they um, are here legally and then you find sort of one month, six months, maybe even a year's down the line, that is not the case. You can no longer continue that employing that person and that person sort of has their life turned upside down. But they may have been under the impression that they completed the right to work check and they were able to stay in the UK. So it's a not a good, there's a potential dilemma here for both employers and employees. So we've sent out a circular to members already on this, which you may have received. Um, there seems to be three ways to address this. The first is to make um, is to allow, sorry, employers to make settled or pre-settled status a prerequisite for a job offer. The second would be to um, allow in the application process to include questions on when a job applicant arrived in the UK, so you could determine whether they meet that um, sort of baseline criteria for the EU settlement scheme, which is to be um, resident in the UK by the 31st of December 2020. And then the third seems to be a sort of don't ask, don't tell style approach. We've had some feedback on this already. Um, there seems to be a consensus that number two is the best solution given the regulation as it stands. Um, but I'm very keen to hear further feedback on this um, by Friday midday, ideally, as I meet in the Home Office uh, on Friday afternoon for a follow up meeting on this. So for, for any information and also just for any further explanation of that, it's a bit fiddly to fit into this webinar in a short um, section, do please email me. Um, and also check your inboxes. You may receive the circular in the week, but I'm happy to recirculate that. Um, that's the end of my section. I think handing over to Dominic, I believe, for the next section on uh, the 171 questions. Um, the FDF raised a list of 171 questions that have been outstanding in many cases for approaching two years with the government. We continue to get uh, responses in dribs and drabs from DEFRA 
and the document, which is available both on our members and our public Brexit web pages, includes the very latest answers that we've received. Uh, as things stand, we've got about 89 of 171 questions sufficiently answered, and a very large share of the answers provided that we have told DEFRA are not clear uh, or do not address the question that we've actually asked them. Uh, but would advise members to keep an eye on that document because there is some really useful information and some useful clarifications in the questions that have been answered. So yesterday, government published a huge number of statutory instruments, and amongst these was the statutory instrument for the UK Global Tariff. Uh, this has been long awaited, and we've had conversations with government in recent weeks asking the question of exactly why, if they plan to implement the Global Tariff in the way that had been set out in May, they hadn't already put in place the uh, legal provisions to do this. Well, this moved on yesterday, uh, and the statutory instrument has been put in place, uh, and that will follow what is called the made affirmative procedure, which effectively means that as soon as the government has tabled it, it comes into law, uh, and then a process follows afterwards of up to 40 uh, parliamentary days for scrutiny to take place and approval after the fact. Uh, amidst all of the uh, tariff there, um, and the details that have been published, there is a document that I've included a link to on this page, and I'll happily share if anyone wants to get in touch with me, that sets out changes to tariff rates from those that have been published in May for 27 products. Uh, you can see on the right-hand side a few of them uh, uh, listed from the first page of this document, uh, but it includes certain basmati rice varieties where the tariff has been reduced to zero, uh, and then a very long list of different types of flowers where the tariff rate has been changed from the 0% rate announced in May to a rate that is the equivalent in pounds and pence to the EU's common commercial tariff. Um, the same uh, is true as well for olive oils and a number of other products. I would advise businesses to ensure they take a look at this list uh, and uh, if they have any concerns or any comments, I would be very, very keen to hear from them as soon as possible. Moving on to the world of trade agreement continuity, as led by the Department for International Trade, we've seen a flurry of announcements since the last webinar took place, with a number of deals both expected but also some unexpected that have been rolled over. As I mentioned on the last of these webinars, the Canada deal had been agreed, it's now been signed, but the concerns that I raised around possible gap in uh, application in January uh, look like being uh, the case. Uh, and we've seen that the Canadian uh, Parliament who, uh, rose last Friday uh, without ratifying that deal in time, uh, and the Parliament will not sit again until the 25th of January 2021. So DIT is scrambling uh, as a matter of real urgency to try and work out some sort of solution with Canada to avoid trade def uh, defaulting to WTO most favoured nation tariffs for a period of uh, potentially up to a month or more uh, at the beginning of next year. And it appears they have some ideas about how they may do it, but at the moment there's no clarity that that will be possible. Um, in the case of Iceland and Norway, the goods agreement that had been put in place in 2019 for a no-deal scenario has been brought back into play because the uh, new trade deal that was being negotiated uh, couldn't be concluded in time. 
but that means that uh, continued trade in agri-food and drink products can continue uh, from the 1st of January, which is extremely welcome. Alongside that, deals with Egypt, North Macedonia, Singapore and Vietnam are at various stages of uh, signature and approval. Uh, and the one that came as a real surprise to, I think, everyone in the trade world was the deal with Mexico, which just days beforehand was looking like uh, being a deal that just could not be done in time and that we would certainly default to WTO terms. Uh, but that very quickly changed uh, last week with the announcement that a deal had been put in place. However, as things stand, it does look like that one may fall into a similar track as Canada, and we may not see the deal applying necessarily from the 1st of January, and some sort of gap could be possible. Of the other uh, deals that are, are currently ongoing in talks, we have um, uh, the likes of, I think, uh, Albania and Moldova are looking like deals that could and possibly will be done before the end of the year. Uh, and the Turkey agreement is all but done, but is entirely contingent on agreement being reached with the EU uh, so that the uh, UK can effectively uh, copy and paste the rules of origin chapter from the EU trade deal into that Turkey agreement to allow that one to apply. Uh, and that Turkey agreement really is the sort of last big deal that remains to ensure we get as close as possible to 100% of our existing preferential trade via these agreements. As you'll see on the right-hand side of the table, uh, there are four of those agreements now which the government has confirmed publicly will not be done uh, for the end of the year, uh, but they do plan to continue talks to try and get deals done in 2021 with each of those countries. Moving on, I think my final uh, update is around the UK-US tariff disputes that uh, have been uh, going on for quite some time. We saw last week an announcement from DIT that uh, they have uh, taken heed of uh, some of the, the uh, comments that we provided and many other industry uh, bodies have provided to them in recent weeks that there is a real urgent need to de-escalate uh, a number of the existing tariff disputes. And to do this, DIT has announced that they will suspend the Boeing tariffs that were due to come into force from the 1st of January, which would have affected uh, nearly £50 million worth of imports of food and drink from the USA, including for peanuts, uh, dried fruit, and a range of other products. Um, this is, uh, uh, as I say, a most welcome uh, announcement from the industry side of it. Uh, and we saw the US Trade Representative publicly welcome the move but disputes uh, the UK right to apply these tariffs in the first place. Uh, I was on a call earlier this week with uh, Trade Minister Greg Hans, and uh, it's very clear from what they said that the uh, UK government is very confident in the legal advice that they do have that right to apply the tariffs should they so wish, uh, but the indications are that the US side has responded positively, and they are uh, hopeful that in 2021 they'll be able to uh, put in place longer-term solutions to address the uh, existing uh, US Airbus retaliatory tariffs that are affecting uh, a very large volume uh, and value of exports of cheese and Scotch whiskey in particular, uh, but also uh, what are called the Section 232 tariffs, which apply to aluminium and steel, and the dispute there, where the uh, EU brought in place, uh, uh, put in place a number of retaliatory tariffs to what they see as illegal US uh, tariff measures, and those are currently affecting imports into the UK and the EU 
of sweet corn, rice, orange juice, and a range of other products. Um, so we see that as a positive move, and we hope that uh, constructive talks will continue with both the uh, existing administration in the US and the U new US trade representative when uh, she uh, enters office uh, early next year. Um, so I think that's all for me, and I'll now pass over to Luke with a really important update on uh, recent developments around trade with Northern Ireland. Um, yep, so I'll cover what was agreed at the Joint Committee um, last week on the 7th of December, which feels like a, a lifetime ago now, but that was an agreement in principle on a number of outstanding issues that the UK had with uh, uh, in the on the implementation of the Northern Ireland Protocol, which specifically meant uh, related to food and drink and probably uh, the at-risk goods criteria, the SPS stuff, and the exit declarations from Northern Ireland to GB. Uh, it is currently an agreement in principle, and I think the Joint Committee is meeting today to um, effectively say that that agreement is agreed, uh, agreed, signed, sealed, and delivered on that one. Uh, so on the first one, and the legal text that has been published on this one, is the at-risk goods criteria. Um, I think it's the, the two real key bits are the, the commercial process and the actual at-risk goods criteria in this one. So on commercial processing, uh, the key point to note is that any goods that are deemed for commercial processing going from GB to Northern Ireland would be determined at risk and automatically face a tariff. What this legal paper does is um, set out what goods are not um, defined as non-commercial processing. So if you fit these criteria, even if it's kind of an intermediary good, these could go over without having to pay the tariff. So some of those criteria are the, the importer's turnover would have to be less than 500k. That's in uh, GB pounds, not EU. Uh, euros. Uh, the processing would have to be solely for goods that were destined to sell in Northern Ireland or via GB, uh, which I think would be quite a hard task to prove if you're a Northern Ireland manufacturing uh, with the you know the kind of all Ireland supply chains you operate on, or if the animal feed that is going over is for to be eaten by the animals in the Northern Ireland farms. Um, on those ones, um, so I think those that that's the commercial processing goods. I think on on. It, the tariff bit, and this will apply to any goods that are deemed at risk for final consumers as well. What the government will do with anyone that does have to pay a tariff is we understand that there will be, at first point, there will be a waiver mechanism, and that will be capped by the state aid, which I think is £200,000 um, across three years from a company. So if you um, get a good at risk, but you qualify for that, uh, that waiver, you will do that. And then once a company goes over that breach uh, of state aid, then there will be the rebate mechanism. We just, um, government has said that it's not yet in place, but it will be in place for the 1st of January going onwards. So those are kind of two things government will help to do if uh, the goods are determined at risk. Um, then on the actual criteria for at risk, this can kind of fall into two real categories really. So if it's going from GB to EU, um, it will be deemed not at risk where the EU tariff is equal to zero. Um, if it's going from the rest of the world into Northern Ireland, so say from China to Northern Ireland, it's where the, the EU tariff is equal to or less than the UK tariff would be deemed um, not at risk. And then there is also two criteria, uh, a criteria that applies to both of those that if if you have this new authorisation HMRC is set up called the UK Trader Scheme, you can kind of self-declare your your goods are not at risk. And this is specifically for uh, kind of goods that are destined for the end consumer and are not caught up by the commercial processing stuff. So the top one applies to. But there are a number of um, certain criteria to apply to this that we think are quite tricky for a lot of GB-based members or businesses, I should say. Um, so within that criteria, you either have to be a Northern Ireland-based business or if you are a GB-based business, to apply, one of the two criteria is you need to have um, even indirect fiscal representatives, or I should say 
both of these. So if you, you need to have an indirect fiscal representative, which can be the trader support service using that. And you would need to have a Northern Ireland office uh, where all the data is kept. And we're try currently trying to um, really pin down what that Northern Ireland office base and what that presence needs to be if you're a GB-based business um, is and how far you can push that because that will be a really a key one for anyone that is delivering on a DDP basis. So you've offered to take care of the customs criteria um, for the Northern Ireland business but that, on that. So we're very much pushing for uh, government on that one, but it's very much one to be watchful of. And then last thing on this one is just that the, the authorization can be provisionally applied by HMRC. So uh, what will happen is HMRC from the 1st of Jan can provisionally apply it um, as long as you get your application in before the end of February. And that provisional application can last four months for that company. Um, where a decision would need to be made by HMRC on that. Um, so that's the kind of a, the headline summary around uh, the at-risk goods criteria and the legal text there. On the SPS front, I think across the board, there's kind of two derogations and they're both time limited and they can only apply to specific traders. So the first one is around meat products and this is very much what uh, Boris Johnson or I can't remember, maybe what George used to talk about saving the the Great British Banger, so it's still able to flow into Northern Ireland. This um, one is around the fresh meat preparations and it's a time-limited six-month one where um, supermarkets or their trusted suppliers will be able to move these kind of products into Northern Ireland, but they will have to go with uh, an, an export health certificate that is signed by a vet um, and it will go through a border control person in the channeling procedure. Um, so it's, it's important to note that this one is it's more about keeping those kind of products off the prohibited and goods uh, restricted goods list because um, otherwise they would face a, they would effectively face a blockade. They wouldn't be able to go as is looking like the case for GB to EU movement. So that's the kind of the real ethos around this derogation. And um, also a requirement that applies to both, but in this one as well, is there needs to be a label um, on the packaging. And I've put that into quote marks for a reason. I'll come to that when I get to the next bit, but on the packaging saying that this is for not for onward movement outside of Northern Ireland. So it's not to be sold outside of um outside in, into the Republic or anywhere else into the to the EU. Um, so this is the second um, derogation. It's called the Official Certification Derogation. That's what the title of the legal text is. It's a derogation for three months, uh, which effectively helps kind of retailers and trusted suppliers um, remove some of the SPS certification. And it includes, uh, that can be included in this, is products of animal origin, composites, food not of animal origin, and plant products. But those goods that are not on the prohibited, that are on the prohibited um, goods and restricted goods list won't be able to apply. So kind of some examples there are the honey, seed and wet potatoes one. Um, and these ones would have to need uh, to kind of enter by a board of control post and um, have a, a pre-notification on traces. So I think there's just some kind of key points I want to pull out um, that we're still pressing on and that I think are worth noting at the moment. So I think we're very much pressing on the scope of the derogation. So they're time limited and they only apply to a certain number of, of traders. So the scope is kind of it's, it's supermarkets and their trusted suppliers. And we're really trying to get press depot to make that as an expansive as possible um, definition. So you know, kind of, you know, manufacturers that can continue to supply in supermarkets if they're uh, delivering on a direct basis to Northern Ireland. So I think we're, we'll probably hear more on that from DEFRA by the end of the week on that one. The second one is the labelling requirement for the not for onward movement outside of of Northern Ireland. So I think what the, the Northern Ireland Chief Vet and seemingly DEFRA seem to be saying on this one is as well is it is a requirement on the packaging and not the wrapping of the products. And I think what they take that to mean is this is on a pallet basis. So rather than having to have individual products labelled with a, uh, you know, kind of a not for onward movement, 
requirement, it will be kind of a pallet. So a sticker on a pallet can count as that criteria and that you have passed that criteria. Um, so hopefully that's some good news. And I think that one will come quickly as well once they have a kind of wide uh, defined the criteria for the scope of, of these derogations. The third one I want to touch on is the certificates that would come under this derogation and not the first one because the first one needs official certification. But I think very much the expectation we have is this is going to be a simplified certificate where the trader should be able to kind of download it and it will be able to sign by the operator and not it won't should should not have to have any involvement of the vet on that one. And then you'll be able to use a commercial seal on the lorry to be able to do the ID check when you get to the point of entry into Northern Ireland. Because uh, typically, if you're going to a GB to EU movement, um, the ID check would normally have to be an official seal. If it's not an official seal and a commercial seal, they would have to pull everything out of that lorry to check it. So this is it's quite a helpful easement if you do get pulled for kind of an ID check on that one. Uh, on that. Uh, and then the last one is that it does need to be uh, go through via BCP and have to have a traces notification, understand. And that there will be a channeling procedure um, to ensure it stays in Northern Ireland, which I think is going to probably going to be something around that you have to you know, say to officials where the end destination is. And then they might be able to a spot check on that one um, on that. So that's kind of a, the headline summaries from those two derogations. I think very much we're very much eagerly anticipating something coming from DEFRA on that one tomorrow. And then some, just some last ones I wanted to touch on was the movement assistance scheme that was announced yesterday, which will help GB to Northern Ireland traders uh, with the, the costs of export health certificates and I should say uh, the phytosanitary certificates. So within this scheme, you should be able to kind of get the cost covered um, of the export health certificates and it will be the vet that will be doing the reimbursing. So it won't be you get the vet in, they charge you, you pay them, and then you have to go to government. It will be very much the vet will invoice the government from this. So it's it should help your, your cash flow uh, if there would be any problems with that. But what the vet can um, reclaim uh, from this scheme for the export health certificates is £150 per certificate plus VAT. So I think VAT is not included in that £150. And the vet will also be able to recoup on top of that their... Um, their their travel costs. So, you know, if you're kind of in a remote location, the vet has to drive quite a long way, they will be able to reimburse that too from this scheme. Um, and the FITOs, uh, as they are done by um, local authority inspectors, there should be no invoice to the trader on that one. The, the, I, I would imagine the local authority would uh, be able to reclaim that one uh, on that. So that's the movement assistance scheme. I think it's on gov.uk now and the helplines are opened for traders to kind of ring in and get see what they can do with that one. Um, on the customs requirement, this is just to kind of flag that there's some guidance now on how customs declarations would be done using the Trade Support Service, so that government-funded um, IT solution feeding uh, to do the customs processes. So how it's going to work is the customs requirement will effectively be split into two. There'll be a frontier declaration, which I think will mainly be generated by the the, the declaration the haulier has to do, and then it's kind of auto-generated using the IT system, and then. Once the good um, is in Northern Ireland, there'll be a supplementary declaration on the fourth working day of the following month. But there's there's a guidance on that on how to do that. And then the last one around the legal texts uh, for the exit declarations from Northern Ireland to GB. Um, so that is the, what they have agreed in the joint committee is that they can waive the exit declarations for Northern Ireland traders sending goods to GB. I think that's for direct NI to GB movements. I think there is still some work to be done on the Northern Ireland's to ROI. Um, to GB movements. Uh, that, Ian, is the extent of my update. I think I'm passing to, to Ian next. Well, thank you very much, Luke. Um, and one extraordinary um, hour 
and a bit we've just had. I, I'm, I'm reeling from the amount of information we've just shared. Uh, <clears throat> some of it actually in real time. Uh, an extraordinary array of different key issues. Now, we've, we've gone on a bit longer today because clearly we're going to have a break with these webinars now up until the early part of the new year, unless there is an urgent need to do something on the settlement of the Brexit uh, row. And uh, we will keep that very much under our uh, noses. We'll be very keen to come back to you in some form if there are important developments on our exit from the EU and the transition period. Uh, as you've gathered from both what you've heard just in the last hour and from and excuse me and from uh, everything else that you're probably seeing on the news and uh, on broadcast and across all the wire services and uh, online, this is quite a fast developing. Well, actually, no, it's quite a slow developing situation. But there will be late, there will be quite a lot of news. I think in the next forty eight hours, it does sort of seem that the mood music is being is beginning to be faded up in order to uh, get us in the direction of an announcement of some kind of uh, resolution of this tomorrow or over the weekend. My suspicion is that there will be a call, further call between uh, Johnson and von der Leyen uh, sometime in the next 48 hours, not least because one or two of the decisions, which I suspect still have to be taken on the... Um, or the arbitration mechanism on the level playing field will require heads of government uh, type approval. Uh, and then I think there will be some kind of agreement. I'm not entirely sure there'll be a signing ceremony because it may be that that is something that, uh, that the Brexiters don't want to see and that the EU doesn't particularly want to celebrate. But let's see how that goes. So it's possible that on Monday, Tuesday or Wednesday of next week, we may need to have some kind of call or some kind of presentation where we take you through exactly what's going to happen. And one of my concerns, uh, which is beginning to emerge, and I don't think we're going to get answers on this today, but one of my concerns, which is beginning to emerge, is the question of what happens if this can't be ratified by all the appropriate bodies in the period between now and the 31st of December. Uh, we had that question from our colleague Lisa Crane from Mondelez this morning on our EU exit committee call. Um, and it is a really, really good question. There, I know in Brussels there's been some conversation about the question of whether uh, we would start 2021, or at least the last hour of 2020 in the UK and Ireland, and then go into 2021 with perhaps the imposition of tariffs and then move back into a free trade agreement. I must say, I think that's probably, that, that conversation, that talk is probably a negotiating tactic to get the Brits to sign. I don't think it is likely or indeed practical for that to happen. But as you've just seen from everything that Luke said and Dominic said and some of the other things that we've said on this call, there is an enormous amount of... Um, what might be described in the building trade as snagging or bodging on the agreements. There's a huge number of places where the agreement in principle cannot be implemented in time. This is true of Northern Ireland and it will be true of any EU exit agreement. And there will also be the problem that there is no chance that the agreement will be printed, translated, printed 
and proselytized in anything like the fashion that would normally be the case. So it will be impossible for all of us who are operating under the uh, any Brexit agreement to have read it uh, because it's 800 pages plus, I believe, another 1,000 pages of annexes. Um, it hasn't been, uh, it has yet to be scrubbed legally and I suspect that there's quite a lot in the drafts that is actually wrong. Um, I know from colleagues in other re- in the regulatory authorities that there are many regulations which have been translated into UK law where the punctuation is so wrong that it means that the regulation means the reverse of what it's supposed to mean and there's going to have to be a scrubbing process there at some point. So all of this is being done at ridiculous speed. We're up against the deadline that we know that something will happen on the 31st of December, but it is highly likely that there will be all sorts of fixes, all sorts of temporary arrangements, and potentially quite a lot of arrangements where nobody knows the rules, so people will be making them up as they go along, particularly around borders and around uh, regulations. A really good example of that is the question that Luke touched on right at the end there, which is, what do you do about the label in Northern Ireland? Well, this morning, exactly what Luke said was confirmed by David uh, Kennedy, the head civil servant uh, at, uh, uh, or sorry, let me be a bit more, let me accord to the rules. A very senior civil servant did indicate to me that um, there would be a stickering on pallets arrangement for labels. Now, uh, that will have to be explained, I think, in public probably tomorrow. I think tomorrow you'll also see the announcement of the supermarket scheme. And as I understand it, although it is a supermarket supplier scheme in name, it is a food retail supplier scheme in reality. And the list of those businesses which are on, uh, which are food retail suppliers will be incredibly lengthy. Um, and I expect that the supermarket, that all the major food retailers, including Londis and, and the other franchises, will be asked for a complete list of their suppliers. Whether they'll be able to do that, I don't know. And there is an interesting question about what happens to suppliers, suppliers. But we will be following all of this up over the next uh, few days, and we will continue to work on this through uh, through the Christmas period. Uh, there will, of course, be a break over Christmas Day, New Year, Christmas Eve, Christmas Eve, Christmas Day, and Boxing Day, and then I'm sure many of us will be back to it uh, next week or the week after next. So we will be around to try and get resolution and clarity on as many of these questions as possible. And while we've been uh, doing this uh, webinar, we've also seen arrangements announced on COVID. We can cover those if anybody wants to ask, but it's bad news if you're in Buckinghamshire and good news if you're in Bristol, North Somerset and Herefordshire and no news for most of the country. Uh, So Andy Burnham is not going to be a happy bunny over Christmas, but he hasn't been for the rest of the year. And I think, you know, I think he has a reasonable case to be, uh, to have be able to say to government, I think you've misled me and the people of Manchester on the question of whether we would be moved on the tiers, but that's something we can go into uh, later. Dominic, I think it's time for some questions. Got uh, three interlinked questions uh, from Nicola Chadwick. Uh, I think Luke is probably the man to answer this one. So the first question, are there any allowances in place for sending samples of meat, fish and dairy products to the EU? 
or will a health certificate be required for every single item, regardless of size or value? So I think, unfortunately, I think there will have to be an export health certificate for each individual um, sample if you want to send it. I think um, any product that enters into the EU would have to have the appropriate health certification. I think if you look at something DEFRA has recently sent out, that's around the passenger um, requirements. So any passenger that has a kind of a, a cheese sandwich would have to destroy it before they got to the EU border. So I think that very much tells you how they would treat um, any goods of any size. But I think samples certainly would have to have an export health certificate. Um, the second question uh, linked to that is, will the requirement for a certificate come into force on the 1st of January or is there a transition period expected? If it's going to the EU or Northern Ireland 1st of Jan, if it's coming into GB uh, from the EU, um, it should be 1st of April or health certification. And finally, is there any guidance or information the FDF can offer regarding getting uh, this in place? Uh, we can look and see what we can pull together. So second questions from uh, Ian Mace uh, regarding Northern Ireland. Do we know whether tariffs will, will apply to plant and equipment or spares? going uh, to Northern Ireland from Great Britain? That is a, a good question. I imagine plant equipment and spares would fall into, um, it wouldn't be a commercially processing good um, if you were bringing it over, using it on the farm. Um, I imagine it falls either into the similar category of the, the animal feed to use to the farm or um, it would fall into um, if you have that trusted trade authorization, but we can certainly ask the question of that one because that's an interesting one. But I imagine it it would be the same as the UK trader scheme authorization you'd have to use. So the next question from uh, Kerry: We have uh, we have a three month derogation, but can we use current labels for Northern Ireland, i.e., with uh, EU health ID rather than GB? So I think on this one. Um, Obviously, the derogation is very specific in who can apply. Uh, we haven't had anything confirmed from DEFRA or FSA yet around what would be the health mark requirement, health or ID mark requirements for those on that derogation. But I would watch very closely after what is announced tomorrow um, around the criteria for those derogations and what happens on the FSA guidance and if you can apply to be those derogations. Final question, and it wouldn't be uh, an FDF webinar if we didn't have anything on heat-treated pallets. Uh, we've seen conflicting information on heat-treated pallets. Will the uh, EU to UK movements after the 31st of December have to be on these? Has anything changed, Luke? Or... No, so on heat-treated pallets, if it's going from EU to GB, the requirement in legislation is there to have it. So you have to have, according to the legislation, a heat-treated pallet. I think where the confusion comes in is government has been saying um, in its guidance or when it talks to stakeholders that they will take a pragmatic and risk-based approach to this uh, as the EU's risk profile does not change um, from the 1st of Jan to the 2nd of Jan. However, the legislative requirement is there. So it's sort of government saying there is a grace period, but you are going to have to take a risk if you want to take that. The legislation's there and it's up to you whether you want to break the requirements. And I think on this point, it's one that we continue to press on. And I think uh, we've had conversations with colleagues in Brussels encouraging them to do the same on the side to push for a pragmatic approach from the 1st of January for movements in both directions. But I think at this stage, there are no indications of any movement on this. But uh, we wait to see, see whether there is a, a sensible outcome in the deal as and when it arrives. Dominic, a couple of things. First of all, I think when I leave the FDF, um, 
I'm rather expecting that my leaving gift will be a heat-treated palette. Um, it has come to be a, it's actually quite a, really quite an appropriate symbol for the way in which this whole issue has been managed and the implications for all our members. And actually, the answer to the question that Luke just gave is, is deeply symbolic of what I was saying just now about most businesses would sort of expect that in most situations, regulations would be uh, in place and it would be clear whether a regulation applied or didn't apply and to whom and when. And the government's attitude to what it calls pragmatic enforcement on heat-treated ballots is a fantastic example of where that clarity can be overtaken by the wish of government to be flexible. And, of course, the flexibility is welcome and indeed vital. But the application of the flexibility in itself causes enormous amounts of uh, obscurity and opacity and real concern about whether a risk should or shouldn't be taken. And I think for heat-treated pallets, you can read the entire Brexit agreement that we're about to, that we may be about to see. And that's what I meant by saying there will be an enormous amount of government attempting rightly and entirely honourably to give uh, business wiggle room to continue to operate and business being aghast that it's basically taking the risk itself with something that is actually the government's responsibility. And I don't quite know how you resolve that because I'm pretty sure that most of us would want the wiggle room, uh, but the government is just not in a position necessarily in every case to make that that wiggle room statutory. So I, I know that is deeply frustrating for many, many people on this call. And indeed, uh, if I were back in business uh, in, in one of my previous employers, I would be one of those leading the charge for more clarity. But uh, unfortunately, we are not today able to be the messengers of clarity. What we can be is the messengers of, of detail and hope. And I hope over the last hour that you've out of it, you've seen just how hugely deployed the FDF is on your behalf across such a large number of issues. Um, I'd like to just uh, take this kind of Christmas opportunity to thank all of our contributors this morning. Uh, just an amazing amount of work done by both those who presented and quite a lot of those who didn't present but who work with and for our colleagues. A huge effort across the whole team all 65 of the FDF's uh, staff in England, Scotland and Wales. Um, and we'll continue to be deploying them on your behalf over the next three or four weeks. A big thank you to Dominic, uh, who has now taken over the management of this great uh, presentation um, uh, from Tim. And Dominic, fantastic effort. Um, I will in one minute leave the last word to you. But let me just wish all of our members and all of our friends who are listening or watching this uh, a very uh, Merry Christmas. This is going to be the most extraordinary and, and in some ways one of the least satisfying Christmases, I think, of any of our lives. Uh, it is, however, a real achievement to have got this far in one piece, uh, both personally and uh, corporately for all of us. I very much hope that 
the um, pretty depressing news about the vac- about the, uh, the progress of the virus that we heard earlier in the presentation is something that will overly over quick, be over relatively quickly. And as Caroline said, we're doing all we can to help that process move forward as fast as possible with testing and uh, hopefully eventually with the vaccine. And I noticed during the course of this presentation, the EU has followed the UK in prioritising food and drink uh, manufacturing and food and drink workers across the food supply chain as the most important recipients of uh, testing and the vaccine after health workers. And we, we very much hope that that will be true in the UK very soon. Um, and in that spirit of, uh, of optimism for the year to come after the most terrible year that many of us can ever remember, uh, I'm very pleased to wish you a very pleasant and peaceful Christmas. And I hope that we'll be back with you uh, perhaps not too soon, but it's not impossible that we might be back very soon talking about some of these issues again. And until then, stay safe. Dominic, the last word is with you. Thank you, Ian. Uh, so as ever, slides and recording of the webinar will be available on the FDF website shortly. An audio version of it will be uploaded uh, to the FDF's Passionate About Food podcast, uh, where we continue to have uh, in the weeks between the webinars, uh, conversations with Ian and various other guests that will be of interest to you. Um, during the Christmas period, please, if you have any questions or any concerns uh, around uh, EU exit and uh, uh, whatever comes to pass in the negotiations between the EU and UK, do uh, send your questions to our Brexit at fdf.org.uk uh, email address. And uh, the team will be on hand, ready to answer your questions. I, for one, am planning to be uh, spending Christmas Day leafing through a Rules of Origin chapter while eating my uh, Brussels sprouts. And I think uh, it's going to be a a busy Christmas period for all of us. So uh, thanks again for joining us. And uh, as Ian said, have a, a very happy and enjoyable break when you get there. Thank you.